Booker T. Washington, native Virginian and founder of Tuskegee Institute, and Julius Rosenwald, the president of Sears Roebuck and Company, first met in 1911. By charting the lives of these two men both before and after that meeting, today's speaker offers a fascinating glimpse into the partnership that would bring thousands of modern schoolhouses to African-American communities in the rural South, including nearly 400 in Virginia. By the time segregation ended, the Rosenwald schools, as they came to be called, that sprang from this unlikely partnership were educating about a third of the South's African-American children. Stephanie Deutsch was born in Washington, D.C. As the daughter of a foreign service officer, she grew up in New Zealand and France, as well as in Arlington, Virginia. She majored in Russian studies at Brown University before spending a year in Moscow in, as she called it, the bad old days. She received a master's degree in Soviet Union area studies from Harvard, which I guess you probably can't get that degree anymore, but uh, she did. And um, despite much foreign experience, she discovered that what her true love is is American history. And that resulted in her book, You Need a Schoolhouse, Booker T. Washington, Julius Rosenwald, and the Building of Schools in the Segregated South. Stephanie has lived on Capitol Hill in Washington since 1975 and has for 18 years served as chairman of the Grants Committee of the Capitol Hill Community Foundation, which gives away a quarter million dollars a year in small grants. She's written articles and book reviews for such publications as the New York Times, the Washington Times, and the Weekly Standard. She and her husband, retired television director David Deutsch, have four grown children and one grandchild, who we heard about today, named Julius. So please join me in welcoming Stephanie Deutsch, who will speak to us about Booker T. Washington, Julius Rosenwald, and the building of schools in the segregated South. It's wonderful to be here. Well, you heard a little bit about my foreign service um, experience, foreign living experience, but in 1957, I was a fourth grader at Jamestown Elementary School in Arlington, Virginia. And my recollection is that we spent that entire year focused on the 350th anniversary of the colony for which my school was named. We talked about the Susan Constant, the Godspeed, and the Discovery. You'll remember the three ships that brought the colonists to Jamestown. We learned about the building of James Fort, the planting of tobacco. I don't believe the starving time was part of the curriculum. Certainly, the gruesome details that we lear learned last week were not talked about. But of course, the dramatic uh, interaction between Captain John Smith and Pocahontas was part of, part of the curriculum. Uh, my class wrote a play about Pocahontas and Captain John Smith, and my recollection is that when we performed this play on the radio, I played the part of Powhatan. <laughs> this seems an odd bit of non-traditional casting. Uh, there weren't as any woodland Indians in my class, but there were certainly plenty of boys. Um, but perhaps it just reveals delusions of grandeur on my part. Uh, in any case, my love of American history does have Virginia roots. Uh, <clears throat> when I started researching my book, the very first Rosenwald school I ever visited was the Scrabble School in Rappahannock, Virginia, in uh, northern, northern Virginia. So um, 
I'll talk about that a little bit later. I also, as my book got further along, had the great joy of spending three weeks at the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts just up the road here and um, a wonderful, peaceful place for artists and writers to, uh, to work. Uh, so I owe a great deal to the state of Virginia. And of course, the state of Virginia is the beginning of this whole story. This is the reconstructed cabin where Booker T. Washington was born. Uh, it's near Roanoke, Virginia, uh, and it's now a National Park Service site. Uh, but he was born, as many of you undoubtedly know, uh, a slave. We always think of slaves on big plantations, but he was one of 10 slaves on a family farm. And his mother, Jane, was the family cook. His father was a white man who he never knew. When he later wrote about his childhood, uh, and if you haven't read Up From Slavery, I urge you to do it. It's, it's very accessible, and it's a wonderful document. Uh, one of the jobs that he remembered having as a little boy was that he would ride behind the horse that was taking the daughter of the family that he, uh, where he lived, to her job as a teacher. And so he would ride on the back of the horse and then bring the horse back so it could work in the field during the day. But when he dropped her off, he said he got a glimpse into the classroom. And those children sitting at their desks working to him seemed like paradise. Emancipation came when he was nine years old, and his family moved to West Virginia. Um, but they were very poor, and so education was still elusive for him. Uh, <clears throat> he went to work in a coal mine, and again, an amazing story that he tells in Up From Slavery. He was down in the coal mine. By this point, he was 10 or 11, 12 maybe. Uh, and he overheard two miners talking. He couldn't see them, but he could hear them. And they were talking about a school for African-Americans, for freedmen, as they were called. And it was a place where you could go. You didn't have to pay. And he says in his description that he crept closer to them so he could hear the name of the school. And it was Hampton, another strong Virginia connection. Um, he, did, he did manage to make it to Hampton with help from a mentor that he met in, uh, in West Virginia, a, a woman who's uh, a white woman who um, had been a teacher, and he worked for her in her house, and, and uh, she encouraged him. And so he did manage to make it to Hampton. Hampton had been founded to educate the freedmen, and it was a school um, designed to accommodate people from all kinds of backgrounds, many of them having little or no education. Uh, and Washington was able to work his way through school uh, as a janitor doing, doing uh, work at the school. And uh, when he graduated, he was chosen his class's graduation speaker. Um, this, is, this is the picture of him um, at that time. Uh, and one of his classmates described him as looking like uh, a conquering hero. I think he looks like a conquering hero who's a little anxious about what <clears throat> might lie ahead. Uh, but I love this picture. Um, he returned to Malden and was a teacher for a while, very, had a very busy time there, but then was invited back to Hampton to teach. And uh, in 1881, the principal of Hampton got a letter from the state of Alabama saying that they wanted to start a school down there to, e to educate teachers. 
and could he recommend a well-qualified white man to come down and run this school? And the principal of Hampton wrote back recommending Washington. And he, he said, I know of no white man who could do better. And so he recommended Booker T. Washington. Uh, at the age of 25, he set off for Alabama. And some of you have probably been to Tuskegee, so you know it's 40 miles east of Montgomery. It's pretty rural today, so you can imagine what it was like in 1881. Very rural. There was nothing there. There were no facilities there with which to start a school. But he set to work traveling around, talking to people, going to visit churches, uh, encouraging them to send their children, uh, and decided he chose the date July 4th as a, an appropriate date to open his school. Uh, the first schoolhouse was in a, um, a barn where he said he had to hold an umbrella over his head while he gave the classes because there was rain coming in. Um, <clears throat> but uh, thanks to his leadership and what emerged as one of his great strengths, incredible fundraising ability, the school uh, did extremely well. And uh, by the end of the 19th century, it was one of the largest educational institutions in the South. Um, like Hampton, it was a school uh, dedicated to a classical curriculum in training teachers, but they also taught trades. And, and one of the trades they taught at Tuskegee was brick making. And the bricks to build these buildings were all made there at Tuskegee, and the buildings were built by the students. They studied carpentry, they studied um, uh, bricklaying, uh, and, and the other, the other uh, skills that went into to, uh, creating the buildings. I love this picture. Uh, one of the things about it that I find interesting is you see the American flag up in the corner. <clears throat> I've been told that when Washington started flying the flag at Tuskegee, you hadn't seen the American flag in that part of Alabama since before the war. Uh, feelings were still raw, um, but he very much saw himself as a citizen and um, communicated that. <clears throat> he attracted a lot of attention at Tuskegee and um, prominent people came to visit. Um, I love this big screen because you can actually see who is in the middle of this picture. Frederick Douglass was the graduation speaker in uh, 1893. Shortly after that, uh, Washington had the opportunity that uh, sort of thrust him into national prominence. He was invited to be a speaker at the opening ceremonies for the Atlanta Cotton States Exhibition. This was a World's Fair type uh, celebration in Atlanta. Uh, the speakers would all be white political and business leaders. Uh, the Vice President of the United States was there, uh, and Washington was the only black person. Uh, any black people in the audience would be up in the Jim Crow balconies. Uh, <clears throat> his speech was five minutes long, very short, uh, and um, he spoke about the desire um, and willingness of black people to work with the, their white neighbors to build up the South, to uh, create a better future for all of them. Uh, and then he made a statement which later became very controversial where he said, in all things that are purely social, we can be, we, black people and white people, can be as separate as the fingers of your hand, but we'll be one as a fist when it comes to mutual advancement, mutual help, mutual aid. 
Um, his speech went over extraordinarily well, and he was um, received many, many letters congratulating him on it. <clears throat> Great applause at the time. One of the letters he got was from W.B. Du Bois, praising him for a word fitly spoken. Uh, they later disagreed, but uh, but they certainly started out as as strong allies in this struggle for for uh, better opportunities for African Americans. Um, the year after the speech, Washington got an honorary degree. He was the first honorary degree um, to an African American at Harvard. Uh, in 1901, he had dinner at the White House with President Theodore Roosevelt. That episode is the subject of a new book called Guest of Honor that's quite, uh, quite interesting. It was extremely, extremely controversial, and both men were criticized horribly in the press after it. Um, but he, he, he gained national and even international stature. Um, all this is set against a background of a situation where things for black people are, in fact, in many ways not getting better, as Washington so consistently preached, but in fact, they're getting worse. Uh, <clears throat> in 1896, you had Plessy versus Ferguson, which legalized separate accommodations in trains, and then that spread to hotels and schools and playgrounds and libraries and the whole panoply of segregation laws that collectively we know as Jim Crow. Um, you had some of the southern states rewriting their constitutions to make it harder for black people to vote, um, disenfranchising them, in effect. And then you had the, the real horror of lynching. Um, I have to admit that when I started my research, I thought of lynching as a very <clears throat> occasional, very unusual thing, and so I was shocked to learn that there was a period of 20 years or so where there were 100 lynchings a year, and that's the documented ones. Um, so there's a lot we don't know about this period. Uh, some of you have probably seen the movie um, The Great Debaters, and you might remember the scene where they're on their way at night to a debate tournament. Um, I can't remember exactly where it is, but somewhere in the South, and they come upon a scene where someone is being lynched deep in the woods. Um, well, that was a real episode that really happened. Um, so, so Washington's optimism was against a backdrop of a very difficult and painful time. Um, in addition to that, his family life was quite tragic. Uh, he married, um, the first year he was at Tuskegee, he married a woman that he had known as a, as a teenager, Fanny Smith. Uh, she had gone to Hampton and then came down to Tuskegee with him. They had a child, a daughter named Portia, and when Portia was less than a year old, Fanny was injured in an accident and died. Um, <clears throat> so two years later, Washington married another teacher, uh, a teacher who had come down, he had hired to come down to Tuskegee, Olivia Davidson, and she was a very beautiful, um, very accomplished person, and he always said that he could never have accomplished what he did at Tuskegee without her. Uh, they had two little boys, uh, Davidson and Booker Jr., and when the younger one was three months old, she died. Uh, I think she had tuberculosis, it's not quite clear. Um, but so there he was, a young man in his 30s with these three uh, children with no mother. Um, 
<clears throat> he married again. He married a woman named Margaret Murray, who had graduated from Fisk and was a teacher. Oh, this is his house. <clears throat> I put this a little out of order. This is his house, the Oaks, which was also built by the students at Tuskegee. If you go down there, it's a museum. It's a wonderful um, place to visit. Uh, but this is his family. This is Margaret Murray in the middle and his three children. Uh, <clears throat> so he had um, a rather tragic life uh, and a certain sadness, uh, a certain guarded quality that stayed with him throughout his life. Well, in 1911, he met Julius Rosenwald. He had the fortuitous meeting uh, <clears throat> that led to this interesting collaboration. Who was Julius Rosenwald? <clears throat> His history, obviously, is quite different. Rosenwald's parents were Jewish immigrants from Germany. They came over separately uh, in the 1850s, and um, they met in Baltimore. And by the time Julius was born in 1862, his parents uh, were running a clothing store in Springfield, Illinois. One of the details that seems sort of too good to be true, is that this house where Julius grew up is right across the street from the house where Abraham Lincoln lived. Uh, the Lincolns, of course, weren't there, um, but Abraham Lincoln had been a customer in his father's store. And uh, so he grew up in a middle-class home in Springfield, um, lots of cousins, sisters and brothers. Uh, there was a small number of Jewish families in town, but uh, he received a Jewish education. He was uh, a bar mitzvah when he was 13 and um, <clears throat> grew up in a very happy, secure kind of, uh, kind of home. When he was 16, he uh, made a big break. Like Booker T. Washington, who left to go to Hampton when he was 16, Julius did not finish high school. Uh, left Springfield to go to New York to be apprenticed to his two uncles. He had two very successful uncles who were, uh, had branched out from retail clothing to manufacturing. And this, of course, was the days when that was huge business, the rag trade, uh, the sweatshops, the uh, large numbers of immigrants finding employment there. Um, and so Julius moved to New York and lived with one of his uncles, um, and then he was joined by one of his brothers, and they moved to a boarding house. Um, one of the people they met at the boarding house was Harry Goldman, who went on to found a firm called Goldman Sachs, which later came into the story. Uh, but so it was, a very, it was a very exciting, interesting time for Julius. He learned the trade and um, moved back with his brother to Chicago, where they started a clothing manufacturing business. And in 1895, again, I sort of like the parallelism, the same year that Booker gives his speech, Julius gets an interesting business opportunity. His brother-in-law has met a man named Richard Sears, and Mr. Sears has started a mail order company, and he's absolutely swamped with business, and he needs someone with some executive ability, and he needs some cash. And uh, the brother-in-law asks Julius, would he be interested in uh, going into this business. Well, it, it, Julius later wrote that it took him about five minutes to decide, yeah, this was a business with a future. Um, it, mail order was kind of the way the internet, you know, the, the, suddenly it's a whole new way for people to get things. And it's a time of expanding manufacturing. Um, there's tons of new products on the market. 
uh, one of the first products that, that uh, really got a, they were mutually beneficial to each other was the bicycle. Um, I read a quote from Mr. Sears where he went to the Schwinn factory and Mr. Schwinn was astonished at the number of bicycles he ordered and he said, you just make them, I'll sell them. Um, they, it, it was just absolutely booming. Um, but Sears was better at promoting himself than he was at running the company, and he really needed someone with some executive ability, and Julius Rosenwald was in some ways the ideal partner, because Julius was unflamboyant, but very businesslike, and he could get things done, and he uh, put a lot of effort into figuring out the timely filling of orders that had plagued Sears. He, he, um, sometimes he would advertise things that he didn't even have. And so people would send in their orders, and, and there's a letter in the Sears files where someone said, I ordered a baby carriage, forget it, the kid's walking. <laughs> uh, so, Sears, so Sears was a, good, was a good deal. And by the time Julius was um, 40, he was a millionaire many times over. Uh, when it came time for Sears to expand, to build a modern plant, he turned to his friend Harry Goldman and Harry Goldman suggested, rather than a loan, that they do an IPO, one of the first IPOs in American business history. And uh, that resulted in um, the building of the new Sears plant and uh, Sears going public, at which point Julius became a millionaire many, many, many times over, certainly beyond uh, anything he had ever dreamed. This is the Sears plant, um, which is enormous and was beautifully landscaped. Um, it had the executive offices, it had a printing plant to print the catalog, and it had a railway, it sided up to a railway station so the, the uh, merchandise could be shipped out straight from there. Uh, as a newly wealthy man, he did some of the things that any of us would do. He bought a new house, <clears throat> he took a trip to Europe. His first trip he took without his wife. She was home with the five kids, and I have to admit, to slight feelings of um, sympathy with her, like he's off gallivanting in Europe and she's home with the kids. Um, <clears throat> Julius Rosenwald was never personally extravagant and one of his letters uh, home during that trip really amused me. He wrote to Gussie, his wife, and he said, I looked at the lace bedspreads that you wanted. This is from Paris. They were $200 with the duty that would have brought them up to 250 I decided not to get them. It was just too expensive. So not only was she left behind, but she couldn't even have the lace bedspreads she wanted. She was a little annoyed, I think. Um, but Julius was someone who was very steeped in a tradition of giving and tzedakah, uh, righteous giving, um, to other people, not because you're such a great person, but because it's their right. And uh, he began, as soon as he, as soon as he made his fortune, he began making regular contributions to his temple, Temple Sinai, uh, and he began looking for other ways that he might use his money. He started, as was typical for people in his situation, with Jewish organizations, um, the Jewish Hospital, um, an organization to benefit immigrants, this was the 18, 90s, uh, early 1900s, there were tons of immigrants coming in. Um, <clears throat> but he, he was also thinking, what were some other ways that he possibly could, could uh, use his money? About this time, two things happened that brought his attention to African Americans. One was that uh, in 1908, 
one of the first major race riots in the country occurred in Springfield. And he wasn't there at the time, but it was on the front page of the Chicago paper for three days. It was, uh, it was huge. The military had to be called out to retain, re regain order. And uh, it was certainly uh, a wake-up call. This was during the period when he had been giving money to help Jewish victims of pogroms in Europe, you know, the state-sanctioned violence against Jews. And American Jews were very aware of it and were doing a lot of fundraising. And <clears throat> in a speech about this time, Julius said, we like to look down on Russia because of the way they treat their Jews, but the way we treat our African Americans is no better. So he was very aware of that. Uh, and then um, about that time, his friend Paul Sachs, also from the Goldman Sachs family, gave him a copy of Up From Slavery. So that introduced him to Booker T. Washington and made him aware of some of the things that <clears throat> were going on in uh, the black community with education. And so when the opportunity to meet Washington came, uh, he took it. They were both involved with the YMCA movement. And um, it, it's an interesting connection, the Y sort of perfectly matched both their, they were both personally kind of upright, goody-good types, and um, uh, they, both, they both liked the why, which um, had, had centers all over the country. A lot of them were residence hotels where young men who came from the country to work in cities could, could find wholesome places to stay without, without having to go to saloons. And um, uh, Washington, uh, was also involved with the Y, and um, Booker T, uh, Julius had given a large matching grant to build black YMCAs. Uh, so J Booker came to Chicago for a YMCA meeting. The two of them met and, interestingly, hit it off, liked each other. They were very similar kinds of people. They were pragmatic. They were um, action-oriented. And each of them had a domain to kind of show off. This was Julius's, and the day after they met, he took Booker T. Washington, took him to lunch in the executive dining room. Um, he made note in a letter to his wife that he thought people looked a little surprised to uh, see him there with a black man, um, but took him all around. Uh, so Washington said, okay, well, you've got to come down and see Tuskegee. Uh, well, that was a bit more of an of a enterprise, but Julius agreed, and in October of 1911, he rented a private train car and took his son, um, his brother, their wives, um, some neighbors, and his rabbi, Emil Hirsch, from uh, his congregation. And they all went down, took two days to get there, um, and came down to Tuskegee, spent uh, two and a half days down there. They visited the classrooms. They saw the students. They met the faculty. and. They were, of course, extraordinarily impressed. Tuskegee was a very, very well-run, orderly, um, it, it was an extremely impressive place. Um, the last night, oh, this is the Julius Rosenwald family. Julius with his two daughters on either side and the two sons here, uh, Lessing and William, and I'll talk more about them later, his wife, Gussie. Uh, they had three, three daughters and two sons. This is the chapel at Tuskegee. Um, sadly, this building is no longer standing. 
Uh, they do have a very beautiful chapel there now, but it's a modern one. This one was designed by Robert Taylor, who was the first African-American to graduate from MIT, and he taught architecture at Tuskegee for many years, and he designed this building. And the last night of the visit, they had uh, a chapel service there, and Washington spoke, and Rosenwald spoke, and the students sang spirituals. Some of you might remember hearing about the Fisk Jubilee Singers. Um, in the 1870s, when Fisk was founded, they put together a singing group, and it went all over the United States, and in fact, to Europe, raising money for the school. And you know, in those days where people didn't have records or radios, for a lot of people, this was their first introduction to this music, and it was a way to start to try to understand these people whose lives had been so different from theirs. And Washington um, made a thing of it at, at Tuskegee. They, they sang the songs. They called them spirituals, but they also called them plantation songs. Um, and uh, it was interesting to me as I, as I learned more about this that there was not always agreement about this. For some people, this was a very painful thing. They, they didn't want to be associated with these plantation songs with that old time. But, uh, but it turned out to be a, a very effective tool for engaging white people. Uh, Rosenwald was absolutely won over. He agreed to serve on the board of Tuskegee, and he invited Washington to come visit him at his home uh, in Chicago. <clears throat> well, remember the little boy sitting on the lap with the Mary Jane shoes on? That was William Rosenwald, and it was my good fortune to interview him, uh, I guess this was 1996, uh, and he was in his early 90s. Uh, but he remembered when Booker T. Washington came as a guest to his home, and I said, well, gosh, what do you remember about the visit? And he said, well, I couldn't understand it. My father and he spent so much time just locked in my father's office talking, and I just I couldn't imagine what they were talking about. Uh, well, I can't imagine what they were talking about, and I think it was in part Rosenwald repeating his question, is there more that I, what, what else can I do? Okay, I'm helping Tuskegee, I'm going to give you money for Tuskegee. What else can I do? And at some point during the conversations uh, then and over the summer that followed, the idea came of, well, especially in the country, black people need schools. Public education was mandatory all over, but in the South, the school systems, the public school systems divided their funds unequally, and there were many places where there simply were no schools for black children to go to, especially, you know, so many of them lived way, way out in the country. Um, and then Washington was getting to know Rosenwald, and he sweetened the pot by telling him, you know, in these communities, People are already raising money. They want these schools so much. They're, they're already raising money. They're already working on it. Um, one of the distinctive traits of Rosenwald's philanthropy had always been that he was a big proponent of the matching grant. He thought that if, if you had some buy-in, you were more likely to really make the best use of whatever money he could give you. So, uh, so when, when Washington started talking about how these communities, these rural little tiny communities were raising money for schools, he was very taken with it. So they agreed to do a trial program to build six schools just in the area right around Tuskegee. Uh, Julius's contribution was $350 for each one. 
This is Julius and um, Washington on the, on the uh, campus of Tuskegee shortly before Washington died. It's the only good picture of the two of them together. They're almost the same size, yeah. Um, uh, okay, Chiha. This is one of those first schools. And I, I love this picture. Um, you can see that it's way out in the country. It's surrounded by fields. Um, and the children lined up. This is another one of the early schools. I also love this picture because it shows something about the schools that very much impressed Julius when he came down to visit, which is that they were viewed as community assets. And there was a great deal of pride in the community and ownership in the community. And so here you'll see it's not just children. These are, these are, this is the children and their mothers and fathers who are gathered for this picture. Uh, Julius was very impressed by the commitment of the communities to education and by the way the program worked. And so he committed to, uh, by the time Washington died in 1915, Julius had committed to building 300 more schools. What neither he nor Washington had anticipated was that each of them would be swamped with letters. As soon as word got out that Rosenwald was giving money for schools, people from all over the South were writing to him saying, we need a school. We've been saving up for five years. We've got this much. We've got someone who's got land they want to donate. Um, <clears throat> and it, it was clear that the need was huge. Um, after Washington's death, Rosenwald took the program a couple of years after Rosenwald, Washington's death and um, centralized it at the office of the Julius Rosenwald Fund that he had created to administer his philanthropies. And so it was administered out of Nashville. And um, by the time Rosenwald died in 1932, there were over 5,000 schools that had been built in this partnership. And one of the most remarkable things about it, uh, at lunch we were, we were talking and using the word leverage. One of the most remarkable ways that Booker T. Washington, I told you he was a genius fundraiser, uh, once the program got started, he pulled in the public school systems and he said, with which he was connected, and he said, you know, you've got to provide schools, but I've got a way that you won't have to spend nearly as much to do it. I've got this philanthropist up north. I've got these communities that are giving money. So the school systems, which initially signed on purely to maintain the schools, by the time the program had moved to Tuskegee, the school systems are the major funder. And they're, they're donating the major amount of money to build these 5,000 schools. Um, this is Thomas Moton, is the person sitting down in the middle. He, uh, became president of Tuskegee after uh, Washington's death. And uh, these men are the uh, Rosenwald Rural School agents, people who went out into the communities to talk to them, to encourage them, to have what they called arousement meetings, to get people enthusiastic about the idea of trying to apply for a school, to build the school. The state with the most Rosenwald schools, oh, another of the pictures I loved. You can probably see I love all of them. This is a school in Texas. It's called the Friendship School. And you can see that it's tiny, and it's way out in the middle of nowhere. 
um, the, the schools were built from Maryland all the way to East Texas, um, all over the South, in all 15 states of the South. Um, the state that had the most was North Carolina. They had a particularly active uh, state agent for Negro schools, which was a, a white person who worked for the school system, and he was, he was in his job for the whole um, 20 years of the Rosenwald Fund doing this, and so he was very connected, and so North Carolina has over 800 schools. Uh, but Virginia had 365, and uh, interestingly, no one can say for sure how many of these schools are still standing. Uh, the Virginia Department of Historic Resources has been working to find and document uh, the existing schools. Most estimates are that about 10% of the schools are still standing. Um, there are 10 in Virginia that are on the National Register of Historic Places. Um, some have passed into private hands. Oh, this is a North Carolina school. I love this one. This is a very typical uh, plan. The plans for the schools were sent from Tuskegee, and they were standardized plans. So you often see schools. There were several different plans, but this was probably the most typical one. This was a two-teacher school, and many, many of the schools looked like that. Uh, this is down in um, outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, the school is no longer a school, but the street retains the name, which I quite like. This is also North Carolina, uh, a tobacco field. Um, when I visited there, I thought, gosh, this is so rural now. Uh, what must it have been like in 1920 when the school was built? Uh, very, very rural. The National Trust with Historic Preservation has embraced the effort to find, document, and in some cases, where possible, restore the schools. And uh, in 2002, the trust named the Rosenwald Schools as a group to the list of most endangered historic sites in America. Uh, and so since then, there's been quite a bit of attention to them. Uh, the Scrabble School that I, oops, this is what the inside of some of them looks like today. Um, this is the first time I visited the Scrabble School. This is about four years ago, I guess. And um, the woman directly behind me in the blue shirt went to the school. The two women in the front row with me went to the school. And let's see, uh, she's not in the picture, but one of the women who greeted me that day had gone to the school during the one year, 1969, it functioned as an integrated school, and then was closed when the schools desegregated, and then was closed when the schools moved to a larger facility. And the county decided to use this place for their uh, county dumpsters. And they, they put the dumpsters there, chained up the school, and uh, the husband of one of these women had gone to the school, moved back to the area after a career working somewhere else, and decided, that's a shame. We need to preserve the school. And he started working with the county and, and talking about it and getting interest. And this is the school today. Uh, it is a... Um, senior site for their, for their county senior program. They have lunches there. And at least two of the women who were in that picture, who were students there, they've come back to the school now as part of the senior program. Um, they also have a small um, heritage. One wall is a museum, and school groups visit there by uh, appointment. And one of the things that they've done 
is they have written a little lesson plan based on the Rosenwald School that meets their local county's um, standards, curriculum standards, in English and in history. Because they, part of their standards is they're supposed to teach civil, civil rights history. And um, so they have written a curriculum that has now been adapted, adopted by, um, by Rappahannock County. Uh, it's kind of a remarkable uh, story. And they have lots of events, lots of events there, community events. The legacy of the Rosenwald schools is apparent in the tremendous enthusiasm and energy that alumni have put into preserving these buildings. But of course, the true legacy is the people themselves, not the physical structures. This is the fact that I find the most amazing. In Virginia, the African Americans who built the schools and who attended the schools contributed twice as much money, dollar for dollar, as the Rosenwald Fund did. These were people who were almost universally poor. Many of them were people who had no education themselves. But they knew that this was the road forward for their children. They wanted their children to have something that they hadn't had. And they made it happen. Um, when they donated their time, their money, or their land, they had already paid taxes but they went the extra mile. And when the time came to push for the end of segregation and to finally throw off the poisonous legacy of slavery, it was men and women steeped in this tradition of self-reliance who took on that task. You know, we often think of the civil rights movement in terms of the leaders because they were such charismatic interesting people leading the movement. But they couldn't have done what they did if there weren't legions of people willing to walk to work for a year in Montgomery, Alabama, willing to sit in quiet dignity at a lunch counter in North Carolina while people spat on them, or willing as young teenagers to walk a hateful gauntlet to get into high school. This history is really quite recent. The year those students walked into Central High in Little Rock was the year I was in that classroom studying the Jamestown Festival in Arlington, Virginia. There were no African Americans in my class, in my school. I didn't know any African Americans. It was only when I got to college that I started to know black people. And this was the 60s, and so frankly, I was terrified by a lot of what was going on, by a lot of what was happening. I didn't understand it. I didn't understand the rage. I didn't understand the anger. I didn't understand what was happening. And it was really only as I began to study this that I began to see the picture and, and begin to put together the pieces. I think recent history can slip away rather easily. It can also seem to lack charm. I mean, it's not a costume drama. There are no reconstructed sailing ships. Small schoolhouses on country roads can seem a rather ordinary thing. But in the case of this story, they're not. They're really quite remarkable, and they have quite a remarkable story 
to tell us. This is a story, uh, this is the Ridgely, the Ridgely School, 25 minutes from where I live in Washington, D.C. It's in um, Prince George's County, Maryland. And you see the woman in the red suit. Some of you might know about the Deltas, the service sorority, African-American service sorority. They've adopted this school as one of their projects, and so they staff it uh, when it's open to the public. And they've, they've restored it as a small museum. Uh, this is the Reedville School um, in Reedville, Virginia. Uh, it it uh, was an unusual design, and it was an unusual um, in that it was a high school. Uh, in 1932, they changed the name from County Training School to the Julius Rosenwald High School when Rosenwald died. And it has just recently been deeded by the farmer that owned it to a um, group of alumni that's trying to uh, get it restored and they've got a ways to go. When I saw it, it was full of hay. Um, this is a school near Virginia Tech. This is what has happened to some of the schools. This place had been an um, upholstery shop and then a fire started and it, it burned and it's just standing there like that. This school is in um, Linden, Texas and you can see it's that same design. This is one of my favorite schools. These women, several of them went to the school. The woman uh, in the front row on the far right taught at the school for 40 years. Um, they get together to make quilts and they have a presentation about the history of the Underground Railroad that they do. Uh, I got to see it. Uh, in fact, I, at, at, at a conference at Tuskegee about the Rosenwald schools, I won the raffle for their beautiful quilt, so I, I have that at home. Um, but this is an example of how the schools can be kind of a teaching tool and uh, a, a wonderful resource, community resource. Um, they were just great. I went and, and spoke there and they gave me a tray, one of those um, trays with sections for the different kinds of food from their school lunch. And they, they um, Ether, the woman in blue in the back row, her mother had been the school cook. And she said, we only have 20 of these trays left, but they gave me one. Um, you might recognize that Congressman John Lewis. Uh, he went to a Rosenwald school um, outside of Tuskegee. And um, I don't know if he's read my book. I hope so. <laughs> uh, this is my final picture. As a result of my interest in the schools, I uh, ended up getting to know Julian Bond a little bit. Uh, Julian Bond's father worked for the Rosenwald Fund uh, as someone who went out and inspected the schools. He was, Julian Bond's father was an educator. And um, Julian himself, some of you probably know, taught civil rights history at UVA. And in connection with that, he organized um, for several years civil rights field trips. And my husband and I went on three of these field trips. Uh, and they were absolutely thrilling because you're, you're visiting interesting sites with someone who knows all about the history and it's got, that's how we, I met Julie, uh, John Lewis um, was on the trip. And this is outside of Selma, Alabama. We walked across the Pettus Bridge and there's a little museum there. And um, this was painted on the, on the door and I thought it was, it, it sort of summed up the, um, the feeling that, that went into so many of these schools. Certainly the feeling that Booker T. Washington had and um, that he, that he put into, put into operation with the schools. So thank you, if you have any questions, I'd love to try to answer them.
Okay. Uh, you mentioned the uh, local school systems and their need for money and then later took on some maintenance. How did they respond? Could you tell us a little bit of how they responded when they were first approached by the, by the foundation to begin building these schools? That's an interesting question, and I'll actually tell you honestly, it's a subject I didn't research very much. Um, it would be a, a wonderful thing to try to get more into. I think it probably varied considerably from place to place. Uh, in, some, in some states, they were quite receptive and quite, quite willing, and in other places, not so much. Um, but I, I, I'll be honest, I really I don't know. I was wondering uh, about the recruitment of teachers, where they came from and uh, what their backgrounds were. That's a great question. Um, a lot of the teachers had been uh, helped by the Jeans Fund, and they were what was called Jeans Teachers. Uh, the Jeans Fund was money given by a woman named Anna Jeans, who was a Quaker in um, Philadelphia, and um, had, had a fortune that she left specifically for the training of African-American teachers and to support them. And so this fund supported many of the teachers that were in, in uh, Rosenwald schools. And they also had Jean's supervisors who would come. One woman I talked to said um, that she remembered the Jean's supervisor coming and she had the sewing machine in her trunk and she'd get the sewing machine out and teach the girls sewing. And um, so they were a great asset. The, the teachers were public school teachers. But one of the things that uh, was one of the reasons that these schools are remembered with such extreme um, affection is that in many places a teacher would stay for 40 years like, like that woman um, in, the, in the Texas picture. I, time and again I will talk to people and they would say, oh, Miss Campbell, Miss Taylor, Miss, we had the same teacher for my whole childhood. And uh, another thing that um, strengthened the relationship was that sometimes the teachers would live with a family. Um, they, would, they would, you know, go back to Montgomery or some town on the weekend, but during the week they would live with a, fa a local family because the schools were so isolated. And so it really helped create um, a, a, a relationship. And that is often one of the things that the alumni will mention as, as having been central to their experience, that warm, strong relationship. Yeah. Uh, did you say that the uh, Rosenbaum contribution per school was three hundred fifty dollars? I said that about the first those first six schools. Okay. But after that, no, it was much more after that. But what what was the typical cost of the school, and where did the land come from? The land was often donated by churches, and many many of the schools are right next to a church. In fact, I'm going tomorrow to the Second Union School in Goochland. I don't know if anyone from there is here, but yeah, okay. Um, and that school uh, is right, ne right next to the church, and at some point they needed more land for their parking lot, and they just paved right around the school. And the parking lot's there, and right in the middle is the school. Um, uh, sometimes it was deeded by an individual. And another area that I'd love to get into more detailed research on is exactly what happened when the schools closed you know, in some cases, the county retained ownership. In some cases, local communities bought them back, bought the land back. Sometimes individuals bought them and turned them into houses. So there were all different, all different ways that happened. Um, as to the total amount of the donation, uh, 
I'm, I'm going to be honest and say I, I don't remember. You can find it online very easily. Um, and if, you, if you're interested in this, Fisk University has a wonderful database. If you Google Fisk Rosenwald, you'll get the Fisk database. And you enter Virginia, and then you can enter a county, and it'll give you uh, the information they had at the time about the schools that were built. It can be a little frustrating because the names of the schools sometimes changed. Um, some of them don't have pictures. Not every single school is represented there. But if you're interested, it's a really fun thing to do to just poke around. That picture of the school with the horse, I just pulled that off the Fisk website. They have a lot of pictures of schools. I, did I more or less answer your question? Hello, I just wanted to thank you for this wonderful, wonderful presentation. Uh, I had a quick question. Yeah. Do you have any idea, there are no young people here, unfortunately, in this, today, right now. <laughs> He's young. <laughs> Do you have any idea in elementary schools now, to what extent do black and white students have much of an idea of the kind of things that you've just been talking about, any of the details, do you know? Well, I think that's an extremely interesting question. I have spoken about this at a lot of schools, um, and I sort of, I, I sort of, um, I, I like to do it, because I think this story is a good way to approach an enormous and rather difficult topic. It, it kind of breaks it down into a manageable piece. Um, I think they do, they do know some. Uh, they certainly learn about the civil rights movement, and they, they certainly know that. Uh, Booker T. Washington, you know, has been swept away and uh, is not much remembered, certainly not uh, as much as he deserves to be, I think. I, I'm interested in uh, what you said about the fact that the uh, blacks uh, anticipated uh, the plans of Booker T. Washington and, and Mr. Rosen, is it Rosenthal? Rosenwald. Rosenwald. Uh, and they uh, had wonderful initiative in knowing the needs. Uh, I'd like to cast the character of their response wanting to get schools and doing, in the end, twice as much as he gave to the readiness of blacks in Virginia counties to take up their part of the load when schools were finally in integrated. Uh, I was a newcomer as a salesman in 1961, and I moved here, and I went to Surrey County, and the woman that ran the restaurant was tragically sad about the fact that uh, she might lose her clientele uh, in that restaurant. But Surrey in particular, uh, the blacks uh, became forward and are now a part of the school board and, uh, and, and the schools are supposed to be very, very good. I wondered if you can put your finger on uh, Virginia counties that did so well at the time of, of integration because of what they'd had previously in the experience of that school? Well, I, I wish I could tell you specific cases. I, I, I can't, but I certainly posit that, uh, that the experience of building the schools was one of the 
one of the experiences that created the, the uh, mindset that made the civil rights movement possible and that made, frankly, recovering from all that possible to the extent that it's happened. You know, it's, it's, it's ongoing, obviously. Um, I, I can't tell you specific, specifics about particular Virginia counties. That'd be a fun project to take on. Well into the um, 60s, I believe, Old Town Alexandria uh, was busing their young African-American students, and I didn't know if it included grade school children way out past Manassas. I often wondered, but never did the research, did the county school system pay for that? The busing occurred every day. The kids left in early hours of the morning uh, to get out there on back roads and so on. I wondered if you had any research that you did in that area. The, these were buses that took the kids to segregated schools? Oh, yes, out yeah. in Manassas and then back to Old Town. Uh, at the end of the Rosenwald Fund, they did fund some buses. Uh, one of the stories that I heard, that I hear frequently from alumni of Rosenwald schools, and I'm talking about people our age, you know, um, uh, was the school bus carrying the white kids, passing them as they walked to school. Um, that was classic, and many, many of the Rosenwald schools, the students walked miles, um, so it was far. Whether specifically those Alexandria buses were paid for by the Rosenwald Fund, I mean, by then, no, it, it didn't exist anymore, so I don't know. Um, but at the, at the at the end of the of the when they stopped building schools, they had a period when they did pay pay for buses, and more of the kids got to school on the bus. <laughs>